Hello, and welcome to Six Figure Authors, the show that helps you take your writing career to the next level. I'm Lindsay Baroker, and I'm here with my two co-hosts. I'm Andrea Pearson. And I'm Joe Lello. And this week, we have a great guest for you. We're talking to successful fantasy author Jasmine Walt about publishing fantasy, co-authoring series, launching a pen name, and also, and we had a request for this, organizing author and reader events. I think Jasmine is unique among our guests in that she's put on writing retreats, author dinners, and festivals. And right now, she's working on the Fantasy Book Fest that is in Anaheim this April 2020, if you're listening to this later. Uh, hi, Jasmine. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me again. It's been, it's really, it was really fun last time. You're very welcome. And for those that may not remember, we had Jasmine on the, when we were the sci-fi and fantasy marketing podcast, we had her on the show back in April of 2018, where you were talking ghostwriting and getting your first launch. And I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes so people can check that one out too. But for those who are new to you, could you tell us a little about little bit about yourself and your career so far? Yeah, so um, I've been doing this for about four years. I started off with urban fantasy. Uh, my first series was The Bane Chronicles, and um, it came out and it did really well. Um, that series is like some 11 books long now, um, and it still sells. Um, it's not like my hot cake right now, per se, but it definitely like got me started um, as an indie author and showed me what was possible. And I went from, you know, making like a couple thousand dollars a month ghostwriting to like, you know, six figures. And like that, like my first year, I made like half a million dollars. So uh, that was a pretty big change for me. And uh, since then, I have branched out into all kinds of things because my brain gets bored working on uh, one kind of thing at the same time. So I've done some reverse harem under uh, Jada Storm. And under Jessica Drake, I did like an epic fantasy dragon rider series. I think uh, so far, epic fantasy is actually my favorite um, genre to write, and I'll probably do more in that because my Dragon Rider series so far has been my best, like, consistent seller out of everything. Awesome. And I know we asked this last time, but I think people might be curious when you said you went from ghostwriting to like half a million dollars. Did that kind of teach you the ropes of writing? Like, what did you learn from that that you were able to then bring to the table when you self published? Well, ghostwriting simply taught me like the discipline of writing. And if you sit in the chair for a certain amount of hours every day, you'll do this many words. And if you do it this many times a week, then you'll have a book in this many weeks. So like it kind of taught me like just how to produce on a consistent basis. Um, so which is really important. Um, now, the thing is, is that when you get into indie authoring, it becomes harder because as a ghostwriter, you don't have to worry about maintaining a social presence or doing podcasts or, uh, you know, going to cons or running ads or anything like that. So it doesn't quite prepare you for all that juggling, but uh, it does simply get you into that discipline mindset. And of course, you know, I think Stephen King says something like, you know, you have to write like your first million words before like you become good. And ghostwriting definitely helped me get a lot of the way there for sure. That's awesome. I considered ghostwriting for a little bit and then I was like, ah, oh, that's, I just don't know if I have the discipline. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a grind. That's what it is. Cause you get paid per product. You don't get paid. Like you put out one book. That's the nice thing about being an indie is you put out one book and it can make you money forever. But ghostwriting, it's like a one and done, unless you have some kind of other deal. Like, I think like the Nancy Drew guys and the people who do those kind of books have it different. But most ghostwriters, it's like you get paid for the project and that's it. 
Yeah. Um, um, okay. So you write a lot of fantasy. Um, have you considered breaking into like, like, I don't know, thrillers or romance or anything like that? And if so, um, how would you approach your, how would you change your approach actually? Well, I have actually thought about romance, uh, but ultimately I see, cause all my books do have a romantic element to one degree or another. Obviously my reverse harem books are really romance heavy. Whereas like my dragon rider stuff is much less. In fact, there aren't really any explicit sex scenes in those books. They're kind of like very, uh, kind of vague. Like, you know, that they did it and you know, there was feelings, but that's kind of about it. Um, and I, the thing is, is that I grew up reading romance. So I, I love romance and I have a huge respect for the genre, but in the end, I, I prefer the fantasy and I prefer kind of being able to make up more things as opposed to having to be more, you know, realistic, quote unquote, with my stories. So I don't know if I'll ever leave fantasy. And thriller is just honestly a completely different ball game. Um, although, from what I understand, it's a lot easier to get into simply because not a lot of indies are writing thriller. And um, so if I wanted to do it and I, you know, committed to it, I'm sure it could be great. But uh, like when I branched out to do Dragon Rider, the main thing was that. I just pushed the ads really hard because nobody knew my pen name. Nobody knew me. And then on top of all that, I had actually, as a funny story, because I actually initially released the series under Jasmine Walt, but because um, I had written reverse harem books also under Jasmine Walt, which I then moved, um, I was getting all these reverse harem also bots. And I didn't know at the time, I didn't know how to fix it. Now I think if you do it right, you can. Um, and you do the ads right and stuff, you can publish multiple genres like that under one name, but it can still get really tricky. So I was just getting completely the wrong audience. So I completely unpublished and republished and put it under a new name. So there was like zero association with Jasmine Walt because um, it just wasn't working. And then once I got the ads right and stuff, it started taking off and it did really well. I still have, even though the series is finished, I still get readers who email me. They're like, when are you going to write more? So um, that's a good sign. I was actually going to ask you about that later. I was like, wondering why you did the pen name when you did, you know, fantasy with both pen or Jasmine did the Bane Chronicles. We're seeing pretty that same kind of fantasy and then the dragon stuff. But now I know. Yeah. I mean, I did eventually bring them back under my Jasmine Walt umbrella. Like they all say Jasmine Walt writing as X. So I did do that. But at the time when it was happening, I was freaking out because the books, the book just wasn't taking off and it wasn't doing what it was supposed to do because all my, the, re the wrong readers were seeing it. So now that you've launched a few pen names and a couple series under your own name, and you've been doing this a few years, what are some of the changes you've seen and how have you had to adapt to keep having su successful launches? Well, for one thing, um, I used to do pre-orders like all the time. Um, in fact, like for every Bane Chronicles I put out, I always had a pre-order for the next one. And that worked, <coughs> excuse me, that worked really well for me. Um, you get a, I got a huge boost. I would get like thousands of like sales and then I would collect them all instead of readers like waiting and then forgetting and then having to find it later. So I had always been a big advocate for pre-orders, but recently I released a new, um, Academy series and I put the first book out. And it had been on pre-order for like quite a few months. 
and it kind of topped out at 200, which I think, which is nice, but I kind of think it was because Amazon seems to be counting pre-orders towards release day launches now to a certain degree, but then it didn't stick. And I think it's because what happens is if your book is on pre-order for too long, you're also bought to grow like stale. And so then when you actually release the book, it's not being seen by the right people anymore because it's like old news now. So um, that's one thing that's changed a lot for sure. Okay. Now, obviously, uh, things are changing all the time and you sort of, you know, if you're an effective indie author, you're adapting to them. But have you found that like, are there any things that you've been doing since the start that continue to be a staple of, of what you're doing? Like they're just sort of an evergreen tactic. Uh, well, first of all, I mean, fast releasing is always gonna be better, uh, especially if you're new and no one knows you. Uh, it's really unfortunate and I hate this trend, but at the same time, I understand it because what's happening is there are a lot of readers will be like, I won't start a series until there's three books. And then on the other hand, authors are like, well, if no one's buying my first book, I can't afford to write book two and three. But then on the other hand, readers are like, well, a lot of authors will start a series and they'll write one book. But then that book won't do well and they'll never write the other books. And then so why do I want to start a series if there's no guarantee? Uh, I think that's also why there are some uh, readers who won't read indie books because they know at least with trad books, like there's, it may take a year, but at least that book will come out at some point. So it's like less of a risk. So I think that if I was going to do this like newly for the first time, I would I would write three before I published. Like I would have the first three ready to go because of that like mindset. And I would release them like two weeks apart. I'd have them all. I'd have the first one as a fresh launch and I'd have the next two on like pre-order and I'd release them like a week or two weeks after because that's not so long that like the pre-orders will make your book stale. Uh, but also because the readers can see that um, the pre-orders are there. They're like, okay, well, we know that there are more books coming. And then they're like, oh, it's coming in two weeks. Great. Because conversely, I've had... Because uh, I released my uh, Dragon Rider series fairly fairly fast. It was like six books over a year period. And I had some people saying, I haven't even finished like the second book by the time like book six was out. So you get, you get both camps. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned earlier, like, you know, getting your advertising right to get things to work. What uh, sort of adverse, what sort of ads do you rely upon? Well, I'm, first of all, I'm not the right person to talk about ads because I'm really bad at them. Um, but um, there was a time when I was actually doing pretty well with Facebook ads. And then the algorithms changed because I don't know, I think the election kind of messed everything up with Facebook having to change certain things. And then they were adding new types of advertising. But I used Facebook ads to great effect um, when I launched my Dragon Rider series. And I got a lot of people, a lot of eyes on it, like really fast. Now I actually, um, I have Felicia Beasley and she does my ads for me right now, uh, which has been great because I took a lot of time off last year because I was dealing with a lot of like um, personal stuff and I was just really burnt out and a bunch of things. And she kind of kept me afloat with the ads. Honestly, I... I, I hardly published anything last year and I was still able to pay my bills because she was running ads for me. So ads are fantastic because you can basically keep your backlist earning for you even if you're not personally like publishing every month, as long as you know how to do them. I'm going to have to have her teach me how to do it because I know she's not going to be able to do it forever. But while I have her, I'm going to take advantage for sure. 
And that answers part of my next question, which is, um, how much do you rely on outside sources for services? So do you have an assistant? Do you have more than one editor? Um, you've got somebody who helps you with your ads. I mean, what other things do you do you outsource? So I used to have an assistant who did like everything for me. Uh, now this was back when... Because the truth is, is that I didn't use ads at all in the beginning. And then towards halfway through my career, I started playing with them. And I was doing them myself. And then towards now, when I really feel like you need ads, because there's just such a high volume of books being published that if you don't have ads at all, it's really hard to get visibility unless you're like Amanda Lee, for example, who's been putting out a book every month for like six years or whatever it is. And readers just know who she is. And she doesn't really need to do a lot because she's so established. Um, Two or three a month. Yeah, (laughs) I think something like that. where was I going with this? Um, ask me the question again. I'm so sorry. I lose my... Ch- That's fine. Um, outside sources. Right. So um, I had an assistant who was doing... Because there's honestly a lot of things that need to get done, like um, applying for promos. That takes that takes time, especially if, you wanna, if you're one of those people who... And, and then when you have a bunch of series too, if you're one of these people who likes to run like a 99 cent deal like once a month or once every three months, and then you have six series you're trying to manage like promos every month for all these different series. It's nice if you have an assistant who's like, okay, this month we're going to promote this series. I need to apply to these 30 websites or whatever. Um, And then I used to also have her do, um, she would handle my ISBNs for me. So when I had a new book, she would fill out the ISBN form. She would register the copyright for me. Uh, She did a lot of the stuff. This stuff is easy, but it's so time consuming. And I'm not doing it anymore. Um, and I'm probably really behind on a lot of that stuff. Uh, oh, and uploading paperbacks because I use Ingram now. I don't uh, uh, for wide distribution. And the reason I do that is because I found out um, one year when I, I think I went to a book expo in New York City, and I found out from the librarians that they won't order or librarians, booksellers, either or they won't. I think it's mostly booksellers, but they won't order copies for their bookstore if you don't have like your own ISBN, if you're using an Amazon ISBN, like they hate Amazon, they won't order your stuff, no matter how pretty it is or how good the blurb is. They're like, nope, we don't, we don't want to be involved with that. So um, I was having her upload my paperbacks to Ingram, but something happened and she kind of disappeared. And I haven't <laughs> been able to find a good assistant who does everything. Cause it's hard because she was good because she's one of these people who works exclusively for authors and she does like five. So she kind of knows like the game. And she also did a bunch of stuff like newsletters and blog stuff and social media things. Those things I've always done myself um, because I feel like they need a more personal touch. But kind of like the day-to-day, like, um, you know, monotonous stuff like that where you're clicking buttons and filling out paperwork, that's the stuff where... Uh, an admin assistant is valuable. And also with ads, because I know half of the legwork with ads is like pulling data and looking up stuff. And that's stuff that you can also hand off to an assistant to do for you. I'm going to have to get another one of those. I uh, know. Let me know when you find somebody. I, I'm always looking for somebody to hand my ads to. But, uh, yeah, exactly. Much of a control freak and it's hard. It's difficult. <laughs> it is. It's really hard. Yeah. So one of the things I've noticed when uh, people kind of come out of the starting blocks and have a lot of success right out of the bat, I'm mixing my metaphors like crazy here, uh, is they always have like amazing covers and you're someone that's always had these awesome covers. Um, Have you had the same artists or, and if not, do you have any tips for people, especially with fantasy with the illustrated stuff on finding really good artists? 
You know, it's really hard with illustration because uh, I've used tons of different artists. In fact, for my Dragon Rider series, almost every single cover <laughs> is a different artist. And what happens, what happened for me at least is um, I would use, I would search on DeviantArt and I would search like uh, Legend of the Cryptids, for example, because a lot of the artists who do those cards are really, really good. And um, so I'd find artists that way and I would search other properties and that was kind of the easiest way. Because if you just search fantasy art, you'll find like all kinds of stuff and it's hard to sort through. But unfortunately what happens is that um, these guys will post like their best stuff, which is of course what you should do in their portfolio. But then what you get isn't always their best stuff. So that's why it can be hard sometimes. And it's nice to do like a trial project rather than to commit to like three books or whatever it is, because sometimes, um, I'll have to like send it back like a couple times and be like, Hey, like, you know, this, this is, doesn't look polished enough, you know? And I show them, Hey, look, there's this one that you did. Like, I want this to look like that. So that also happens with, um, you know, photo manipulation cover designers. There's a few that are like that, but, uh, I mean, it's really great when you can find someone who just knows how it's supposed to look and who just does it right the first time. Uh, but you don't always get that. And I, sometimes I think it's probably because these artists take on a bunch of projects at once and they don't necessarily have time to commit the level of like attention to detail that, um, that you want. So it can just be a little difficult. I know people who have like artists on retainer and like they pay that artist and they just use that artist and they have a great relationship because, but that's because they're publishing like three or four books a month. And so they can keep that artist like fed and that's a little different. So, um, I don't know if this was helpful, but it's just my experience with hiring artists. No, definitely helpful. I've, I've just barely started using cover designers and I'm just, it's been messy <laughs> kind of the stressful about, and <laughs> the thing about cover designers and the thing that about ones that are really popular in the indie community is that they get up so far in advance and it's hard it's like um i knew one that i had to stop using because i would book like a cover for her um and then i would be like okay so i need cover two and she's like yeah well my next slot is in like a year from now and i'm like how is that helpful? I also feel like it's even unethical because like if you're committing to a client and like that client bought a book cover from you and you know that they need a series, it's like you should save some or, or you should make sure that you've booked, you know, a couple of slots, not like one here and then another one in a year because then like you're kind of screwing the author over and then the author basically needs to go find the cover designer and recover their first book. So it's like, it's hard, but it's also, um, I know that these artists, you know, they really want to take on a lot of projects and they, they're really passionate about what they do and they want to, um, you know, help as many authors as they can. So like, I see both sides of it, but it's sort of like, I've seen a lot of, uh, cover designers burn out too, cause they take on too much stuff at once. I kind of wish that they would do like a three month list and it's like, this is my three month list. You know, I'm not booking out farther than that. Because also what happens is that I've seen it where uh, a cover designer will book out for a year. And, but if I book a cover for like a year later, the chances are I will forget. <laughs> I will forget that I booked it. And then it's like a year later, the cover artist contacts me. And I'm like, oh, I don't have a series ready for that. I don't, I'm in the middle of this series. I don't need... And they'll cancel and the cover designers left, you know, hanging and they've lost like, you know, 10 covers that they had booked for that month because... 
um, that whatever you get what I'm saying. Um, so it's, <laughs> it's hard. It's hard for both for both parties. Yeah, no, it really is. And um, yeah, I'm the the whole booking ahead of thing and like and doing series and things like that is usually easier to do the rate later books in a series if you're doing them all at once because it's fresh, you know, you don't have to reteach yourself that series. And that's me speaking because I used to do my own covers. So I'm like, right, not, not anymore. You know, it's just, it's too time consuming. Um, it is. I mean, if you can, I would recommend, you know, pl- plotting out your series, like six books, if it's five books, like figuring out what the title and the subject of each one is and just getting them all done, because it's a lot easier to book a cover designer for like six and just say, and even if you have to wait six months, and then, you know, in six months, I'm going to be writing that series. And then you have all six covers and you don't have to come back to them. I mean, that's almost what you have to do. Or you have to find someone who's basically up and coming and maybe isn't like perfect yet, but they're not super booked. Because I actually did that like a year ago, um, two years ago with my Marked by Sin series. Uh, Alexis did that series and she's like actually really popular now. But when I found her, hardly anybody knew who she was. And she did those covers for a great price and they looked really good. And, and I hardly had to ask her to do any editing. So sometimes if like the good ones are booked up, you kind of just have to dig and see if you can find somebody who just doesn't have a lot of business yet and is still starting out. Yeah, see, these are these are good tips. <laughs> okay, so our, my next question is actually one from somebody on Facebook in their Facebook group which listeners can find by searching six-figure author on Facebook and answering the Joe Beard question correctly. (laughs) Okay. Um, Okay, so Frank Hurt asks, um, he says he knows that you're big on writing to market and maybe even writing to trend. Um, He says, I'd love to hear her advice for identifying emerging trends. So I gotta be honest with you, I'm not good at either of those things. Um, (laughs) A lot of people are like, she's so good at blonde. I'm like, just not. Um, I, I stumble into these things by accident. So with reverse harem, obviously that was a trend I jumped on. And all it was is I saw people writing reverse harem and I said, no one's doing dragons. Um, and now of course there's like 50 bajillion reverse harem dragon books. But at the, at the time I saw no one's doing dragons. And I kind of came up with this idea on the spot and it was simple. It wasn't too complicated, but I thought it would fit well. And I read a couple books to kind of get like the feel for what the genre, what people like in the genre. And I asked questions and I wrote the series and it did really well. So like sometimes you can look at a genre and say, well, that genre it's popular and, but no one's doing like this thing because dragons are also really popular in their own right. So I thought reverse harem dragons, it's got to be a winning combination. So it's not like rocket science. It's just, I just saw a need that wasn't being filled yet. Uh, but aside from that, I'm not really good at the trend thing. Like I know, I, I even think that sometimes authors manufacture trends, like the supernatural prison thing that's going around. I haven't seen any readers like really saying, I want that. I've just seen a bunch of authors get together and start writing. And I think authors will actually do that where they'll all start writing the same thing and kind of hope that it'll create like a new trend that readers will jump on it. Uh, now, admittedly, Jate Eve has a supernatural uh, prison series, and that's been out for like years and years. So maybe somebody looked at it and thought, hey, that series still sells well. And it just got, I think it just got like an animated TV deal. So maybe somebody looked at that and said, hey, that thing's going to go to TV in six months. We should just start writing that because it'll become more popular because of Jamie Eve. So that's like my theory on that. I don't know if it'll actually pan out, 
uh, but it's interesting. But for me, I mostly just write what I want to write. I wanted to write a Dragon Rider series because I think Dragon Riders are awesome. I was a huge fan of like Aragon when I was a kid and Anne McCaffrey and um, dragons are just awesome. And I thought this is like completely different from what I was doing and I need a break. So that's what I did. But other than that, there wasn't like a specific like thought process. I just thought, well, thieves sound cool and treasure hunters and I've written books of treasure hunters and they did well. And, um, lots of people like dragons and, uh, my bank chronicle series had steampunk in it. So I thought, why don't I just put those together? And I did, and it worked out, but it's mostly just me guessing. Well, it sounds like also, if you're just kind of reading a lot in the genres that you're right in and you're on Amazon a lot or wherever and seeing what's selling, you're going to notice when like you did with the reverse harem when something new comes along and gets popular. Yeah, that's true too. So we want to ask you a couple of questions about your pen name that you've already talked about a little bit and co-authoring. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm curious with the pen name as I had one and it's kind of retired now because it gets to be a lot of work sort of doing all the social media website and trying to maintain two presences. Um, sure. What has, what is, what's been your experience and uh, do you have any regrets or would you do more pen, pen names at this point? Well, I definitely would not do more pen names at this point unless I decided to, you know, write contemporary romance or something, in which case I would absolutely have to. But I don't really have any plans to do that or or I don't have anything plan any plans to do anything outside of fantasy. In retrospect, I wish that I had not separated everything because um now I want to write more epic fantasy, but I have to write it under Jessica Drake and I can't write it under Jasmine Walt because all of my Jessica Drake fans, most of them still don't know who Jasmine Walt is. And I kind of wish I could put it under Jasmine Walt. But technically, it'll be under both, so maybe that's fine. But at the time that I did it, I felt like I had to because everything was getting all messed up. And I didn't want the same thing to happen where if I released another Jasmine Walt book, I'd have 50 reverse harem books in the also bots. So um, no, I wouldn't recommend this um, as a general rule. Like, time and keep... Like, I have three pages. I have three. Well, I have three Facebook pages and I have three websites, and I don't maintain them all. It's just it's too much work for one person, and I don't really feel like hiring a paying money for a PA to do it. I don't think it's that worth it. Really, those pages are there for advertising purposes because when I run the ads, that they shouldn't be all under Jasmine Walt because they're different people. So I have three different pages, and the ads go under three different pages according to which genre I'm working on. And I know some people do that, um, like some people will create a genre page, like fantasy books rock or something, and they'll use that to advertise their books, or they'll even have like five authors be admins of that page, and all five authors will advertise like using that umbrella page, because then it doesn't look like um, there's an author pushing their own books. It looks like there's like some fantasy page that's like recommending the book. So somehow it seems like better. I don't know if it's better, but... (laughs) It seems better. So people do that. Yeah, I I have one. And I've actually thought of doing that just because then you don't get, I don't know, every now and then you get a comment. It's kind of like a personal attack. Like, why are you selling your books here to me? I hate your books. I don't, you know, I'm like, why are you responding to the ad? You're just going to get more ads like this. Right? People don't even know that. They're like... Facebook is just like, oh, she responded. She must want to see 10 more like this. Yeah, exactly. But I think that's why I like Amazon ads, just that nobody can leave comments. Usually the, com- you know, 99 are great, and but there's always someone and then you're like stewing over it for <laughs> the next right, two yeah. weeks. 
<laughs> which is why it's nice to have an admin or someone running your ads because then you don't even know it's happening. Right. You don't even have to see it then. Exactly. Um, so I'm curious. I hadn't thought about it, but if somebody tries two pen names and then you know, they just decided, hey, I'm going to make it easier and combine the two. Did you go and actually redo the cover art or did you just kind of claim it under both author names? I just claimed it under both names and then just added my name like at the top in like tiny letters. So I didn't have to like do anything crazy. I just kind of added them to both author pages. Um, So it wasn't a big deal. Um, All right. So like you were saying, like uh, one of the values of having a pen name is to avoid having uh, also bots get screwed up from from people who are fans of your other stuff. Mm-hmm. So obviously, even if the pen name is an open pen name, it has to be somewhat separate from your other pen name, just so that the also bots just don't show up anyway. Uh, right. So like, how do you jumpstart and, and like get your, your pen name started? Like, how do you get a following for this basically artificial person? Well, I mean, honestly, it's like I said, I just back before Facebook ads got screwed up, I just used Facebook ads. Like I poured, I was pouring like $10,000 a month into Facebook ads, like a lot. Um, And um, I was making with my reverse harem stuff that I did that I was putting in 10 and I was making like 40. So it was great. Sorry, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on the show. Um, But um, it's not as easy as it was. So I don't know. Um, it would probably require more effort and probably better targeting. And maybe I wouldn't spend quite so much, but it's still totally doable between a combination of ads. Like that's kind of how you get your book in front of readers. Um, readers are willing to try new things. So it's not like, um, it's not like ads don't work, even if you only have the one book out. Like I know what I said earlier about like there are readers who don't want to try stuff, but if you can just, in the beginning, at least, get enough eyes and enough people kind of rolling on it. Um, that's kind of just the way to do it. I mean, one thing that's you know free is newsletter swaps, and of course, um, you know if you don't have a newsletter yourself, that can be a little more difficult. But um, you know, I begged Lindsay uh, to share my book, and she did it. Uh, it was very nice of her, and it helped. Uh, Daniel Aronson, who also writes Dragon Books, he shared for me. So those two things were actually a really nice boost because both of their Dragon readers saw my stuff. Um, so there's that. There's obviously paying for like the newsletter promos. It's just uh, it's really advertising. That's that's just what you. It's kind of become a pay to play market. Um, but there's also like free groups. Um, Lots of authors, like I had an author, uh, Daniel Rose, uh, she invited me to do like a takeover in her group this week. And I think she's kind of doing it just to kind of get more activity in her group and kind of inter- uh, getting uh, cross pollination with also bots. Uh, but like, that's another thing is you can ask authors, hey, can I go promote your group? I've done that before. That's free. You don't have to pay anything to do that. So you don't have to necessarily put out $10,000 a month on advertising. There are other things you can do if you're broke or if you're just starting out or whatever. You don't, um, Facebook is like a great, uh, is a great forum. And, uh, indie authors, definitely a lot of them are helpful and they, they kind of remember what it was like when they were starting out. So there are a lot of people who are generous and who are willing to share your book or talk about it or tell their readers about it for sure. And there's also a lot of people who are willing to join your group and promote their own book. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, that's true. (laughs) Okay, so my question for you is about co-authors. How do you suggest co-authors handle disagreements? And how would somebody who's new to all of this know when it's time to go separate ways? 
Well, that's kind of funny because um, lately I have experienced the downside of co-authoring. In the beginning, um, I kind of did co-authoring as sort of a mentorship thing. And it wasn't really something that I was specifically looking to get anything out of. Like it was like, hey, you know, let me help you publish this. And uh, I did with Inez Johnson and Debbie Cassidy, and they both have, you know, established author careers now, and they did not before they did the mentorship with me. And I'm not saying that I'm responsible, but uh, there's a clear before and after here. So, um, I uh, the thing about co-writing is that I feel like you have to really be compatible, and you have to like have um, complementary strengths and weaknesses. Uh, like I know some people who are both pantsers and they pants a book together and it's like one person writes the, these chapters and one person writes these chapters and they kind of do it back and forth. And that's great. I'm not a pantser. I need an outline. So like that wouldn't work for me because I would be like, where are we going? You just had the character do this. Like, what are we going to do now? I thought we were doing this. So like that completely wouldn't work for me. And then, um, I recently had a co-authorship and this isn't something that I've officially announced yet, but I might as well say here, uh, my friend Emily and I, we were going to do the Academy series together and we'd done the, um, what do you call it? We'd done the, uh, our gargoyle reverse harem last year and it did really well. And that particular project did really well. But with this one, um, we both had totally different ideas for the series and then like she was writing it and then I wasn't happy with the way it was going because I had a different like image in my head and it's not her fault um, but basically by the time we were done with the first book we were like I don't think we can write a second book together because we just don't have the same vision for the series anymore so we had to part ways on that and we did and there aren't any hard feelings but Sometimes that happens. And then sometimes there are hard feelings. I mean, I've not personally gone through that, but uh, well, that's not true, but I won't talk about that. Um, uh, but I'm just saying I, um, I've seen people who have had to negotiate and I think it's really important to have a contract and have a good contract, by the way, because in the situation that I'm not allowed to really talk too much about, uh, the contract that I had, um, was a contract and it's, my fault because I hired a literary lawyer, but honestly, I should have hired a business lawyer because business lawyers, they're a little more uh, shrewd and they see like the pitfalls and the different like, well, what if this happens or what if this happens? Because I saw a business lawyer like six months later and he was like, why didn't you include like 10, these 10 things that I didn't think about? So, I mean, I would go not to a literary lawyer. I would find like a good business lawyer and draw up a contract that like, has everything in it. Like what happens if you split? What happens if there's a movie rights? What happens if blah, 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 blah. Like you want to spell everything out as clearly as possible. And it also kind of reminds you both that this is a real partnership and that you shouldn't go into it unless you really, really are committed to doing this thing together. Sounds like you've had quite the range of experience with co-authors. I have Um, Yeah. I I mean, I think it's, uh, I just want to be clear. I think it's great when it works, but when it doesn't work, it sucks. (laughs) From uh, your experience, is there anything, any advice you'd have for someone who hasn't done it yet and is like looking for someone that would be a good match? Like, could you tell looking back, oh yeah, that was a good match and and I see why. And and maybe the other ones weren't as ideal. Yeah. I mean, first of all, you should really look at the person's writing style. And when I say that, don't just read like a chapter, read like a whole book because 
um, like one chapter might look great, but then when you read the whole book, you might realize, well, this person's not good at like, you know, they've, this person has sagging middles, like that's like a weakness of theirs, or this person's not very good at dialogue. By the way, I'm not saying about this about any of my co-authors. I'm just giving examples. Um, or like this person doesn't know how to like, he isn't good at like describing emotions. Like you got like, you can't really get that from one chapter. You should really read like a whole book and see like how they actually write a whole story arc. Um, because if they're not, if there's something that they're bad at, that you're also bad at, or that you just don't want them to be bad at, and then you go into it and you realize that they're bad at it, you know, that sucks. Because uh, then you're, you're stuck. You're already in there. You're already doing it. Uh, admittedly, if you haven't finished the book, you can kind of be like, all right, well, I don't think this is working out. Because honestly, I think that's the point. Like, you know, within the first like five chapters, if you guys aren't working out, that's when you're going to be like, all right, well, I think we should call it quits. And that's where, of course, you've got to work out who owns the rights to the idea and blah, 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 blah. But yeah, that's kind of one of the easiest things that you can look at is just reading one of their works for sure. That makes a lot of sense. Now, because you're a very efficient question answerer, my question that I was going to ask has been answered. So here's one that I just came up with. Um, (laughs) We're talking about like rapid release is always an effective tactic. And also like co-authoring has got its pros and cons and pen names. And these all things sort of come together in the concept of a shared pen name where uh, a handful of authors will release under the same name. Do you think like knowing what you do about how co-authoring can go and how pen names can go, do you think a handful of authors uh, coming together to sort of write as the same author has any merit as a tactic? I mean, I don't know. Um, Like I've seen like two of those projects, but I haven't talked to those people and I don't really know if it did anything or not. And I feel like it's kind of nice because... um, Obviously, everyone's readers hear about this one series. But on the other hand, like those readers um, aren't necessarily going to know which author wrote that brilliant line and be like, I need to follow that author. Like, it's like, are they really going to follow all 10 of you? I don't know. Um, so I don't know that I would do that. I mean, maybe it's fine. Maybe the, all those authors would be like, yeah, my readership grew by like 500 people that year or, or something. So maybe, maybe, but just, just, from my own reasoning, I'm looking at it, I'm going as a reader, I wouldn't necessarily follow the other authors, I would just read this book. And if I liked it, I'd recommend it. And then I'd go on my merry way. Yeah, I think I'm with you because I, I wrote, I read um, a series that was written by a whole bunch of different authors. And it was really quickly evident that I was going to like some of them and not all of them. And so I just skipped the ones by the authors I didn't like, and then just stop the series completely. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, no, I do think there's something cool about the shared shared world thing where like, there's like a collection of like 20 books, but they're all standalones, but they're in the same universe. Cause then you don't have to commit to reading all of them and you can kind of pick the ones that sound interesting. And then each author's name is on the book at least. So if you like that one, you can go follow that author. So, uh, I, st- I haven't done one of those, but I've seen a lot of people do them and, um, it's, it looks fun at the very least, and you're only committing to writing one book as opposed to writing 10 books with 10 people, which sounds complicated. Yeah, no kidding. Okay, so my next question is, what tools um, do you use that simplify or help any part of the process of co-authoring? So like financial side, any part? Um, so reader links is actually really great um, because it's the most accurate in terms of... Um, 
you know, who made what simply because it actually uses the KDP reports directly instead of, uh, I think book report, they, they're kind of guesstimating in some cases, or it's not totally accurate. Um, obviously you should still do your due diligence and check the reports directly, but reader links has been really good in that respect. And also you can, not that I have managed to figure this out because reader links is a little finicky, but, uh, you can add your audio earnings to it as well. And that makes it even easier if you can figure out how to make that work. Um, because then you got paperback, ebook, audio, and that's all there. Um, so it's really easy. Um, as far as paying people, I just, I just pay through PayPal and I just, I send them and I say, this is for this month. Cause you know, you're, you're getting paid like two months later. So I say, this is for this month's royalties and you made this much. Um, and I don't, I, I mean, I'm sure there are other authors that send like statements or breakdowns. I don't really do that. I just kind of send money as it comes in. Uh, so I don't really do anything very complicated. I just, I just, gather their info as it comes in and then I send the money out and I have a spreadsheet that kind of tracks. Like if anybody asked me, I would go back and I'd be like, oh yeah, so-and-so made this much in April and I could look back and see how much they made in June or whatever. So I have all those records for sure. That is the challenge of co-authoring and doing group projects is you don't get to keep all the money. You actually have to make twice as much in order to have as much as you would have on your own. Very true. And then if people, and then the other thing about it that I will say, and I, and I'm still trying to figure out whether or not I'm suffering from this is when you co-author, if your original readers don't like your co-authored stuff, they may not read any more of your co-authored stuff. Like they may only read things that you wrote yourself because they don't necessarily trust like the other person's writing. And so it does sort of end up diluting your brand somewhat if you do it too much. Um, so it's just something to be aware of. And I've gotten pickier with it is that you really want to work with a co-author whose style is similar to yours and whose writing quality is similar because you don't want your readers like trusting you and giving you their money. And then they pick up the book and they're like, this is crap or whatever. Not that any of my stuff is crap or any of my co-author stuff is crap. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying readers have different opinions and sometimes readers will love one author's stuff. And even though the other author is also a proficient writer, there's just something about that author that they don't like the writing style or whatever. And you can't really do anything about that. It just, it is what it is. All right. Well, thank you for letting us pick your brain on all the publishing book questions. We did promise to ask about events because I, I think it's, I want to know, like, I assume you do these for profit and it's not just like, Hey, I hope I break even. Uh, how did you get into that? Well, um, so yes, I do some of these for profit and some of them I don't do for profit. So like, uh, the fantasy dinner, uh, that, that I do in like 20 books, Vegas, that was kind of like my first foray. And all it was is that, um, every, everyone in Vegas does these genre dinners, but there are so many fantasy authors that uh, there were like, you know, 200, there's like hundreds of us and it, the number grows every year because the con grows every year. And I think at the first year it was like a hundred people or 50, something like that wanted to come and do a fantasy dinner and I was supposed to organize it. And I just thought, well, I guess I could rent out a whole restaurant, but A, that's really expensive. Uh, now, obviously, we could just make reservations at a whole restaurant, and I think people have done that. But A, it's expensive, and B, you only get to talk to the people you're bumping elbows with. So um, I don't think it's really that conducive for networking. So I started renting out these hotel suites 
and doing like a buffet thing. And I would just have people pay me for that. And the money that they pay me basically covers the cost of the room and it costs, it covers some of my time because it takes time and effort to put it together. And it covers the food and it covers the Nerf guns and it covers, you know, whatever else, uh, and the alcohol. So, um, that's not really a for profit thing so much as it is a, I like to get together with people kind of thing. Cause don't get me wrong. I'm an introvert, but I also enjoy uh, networking and talking with my author friends because uh, somehow like your author friends really get you in a way that like other people don't like, they don't really get like what you deal with on a day to day basis and the pitfalls and struggles of writing and advertising and marketing and all the things you have to do. And it's like, you go to dinner with like your normal friends and they're like, Oh yeah, my boss yelled at me for doing blah, blah, blah. And you're like, Oh yeah, I just lost like a thousand dollars in advertising today. Like it's not, it's not, it's not the same thing. Or like my book crashed and it didn't do very well. Like how do I, like your, your real life friends, sometimes they can help with that, but a lot of times they just don't really understand it. Um, and I'm not just talking about the negative parts. I'm also talking about like celebrating book releases and book launches and like the great things that you did. Uh, you know, your non-book friends don't necessarily always understand that stuff either. So it's really nice to every once in a while get together with people who, who know the game and who understand like what, what you're doing. Um, which is also where the retreat thing came from because that's basically like the fantasy dinner, but instead of, three hours, it's a whole week, and we actually get to write together and actually get to know each other. So that's where that came from, for sure. Cool. Now, um, like when you ask the average author, like just cold, like if you ever thought of doing an event, I think probably half of them, or if more than that, maybe, will be like, uh, oh, you mean like a, like a signing? So like, right. uh, naturally, signings are the first on our mind, but like you, you've now you know, described like dinners where it's like a networking thing or, or a retreat where it's like a, almost a craft building thing. Like mm -hmm. what sort of events sort of what's, what's the, the buffet of events that you can choose from and what sort of things should people be considering for themselves? Uh, right. So there's stuff like, uh, the smarter artist summit, which is like, uh, I think it's like two days or three days. It's like a weekend and it's basically just a series of, uh, workshops and, um, not workshops, uh, presentations, um, that, you know, successful authors who make money, they go and they do the thing, um, and they teach you what they know. And, uh, sometimes that's great. The thing that I have found ultimately from whether it's smarter artists or it's 20 books or any of these other, or even Nink, uh, I've been to Nink once and Nink probably has some of the best, uh, array of like helpful, informative workshops and activities that authors can do. And they have like roundtable discussion sessions for like genres. They have all kinds of stuff. But the most valuable part of going into con to a convention is the networking because um, it's different when you talk to even people that you know and that you've talked to online for years. It's, for years, it's different when you talk to them in person, especially if you can get them a little drunk. Um, I highly advise that if you ever run into May Sage, you should get her drunk. And she will tell you everything she knows about advertising. You'll become an advertising whiz. So, uh, May, if you're watching this, I'm sorry. Everyone that you meet is going to buy you like wine or a beer now. Um, but like, yeah, it's just meeting people in person. They'll tell you things that they might not tell you on the internet or talk to on YouTube videos or podcasts or things because it's just a more informal setting. And maybe 
they don't want to tell the whole world about this strategy that they use, but they really like you. So they'll tell you about it. Um, and that's um, what's great about going to conventions is you meet all kinds of people and you can find out all kinds of things that are helpful that you didn't even necessarily consider. Uh, and it's also just fun. A lot of these things are fun. There's there's drinking and sometimes there's partying and sometimes there's karaoke. So you can always let loose. Um, my convention's a bit different and maybe this was a mistake because what I tried to do was I tried to appeal to both readers and authors. So like I have workshops and panels that are like during the day, but then at night I have fun stuff like we're going to do like a D&D game night. And then like on the second night, I have a thing where uh, Luke Daniels and Nick Podell and maybe a few other narrators are going to come and like do live performance readings of like books. And those are like fun things for readers. And then on the last day, we have like, you know, a big like fantasy Ren Fair book signing. So it's kind of like a mix of all these things. So we'll see how it goes this year. Because last year I did like a smaller version of that. And it actually was really fun. Uh, and it went really well. But this one's like a bigger version and it's in a different location. So it's sort of like starting over again. But uh, we have a lot of great stuff. We have um, we have someone coming who uh, is going to be doing a workshop on how to like sell screenplays to Hollywood because he sold a few. We have like Chris Fox. He's going to be coming and doing his like right to market uh, masterclass. Uh, obviously, Lindsay's going to be there. Um, we have, I don't know, we have so many people coming that are going to be teaching. We have uh, Shannon McGuire. She's going to be teaching a class on like how to write a long running series, which is actually something that I think a lot of authors struggle with because with a series, like you can't just take it one book at a time. You got to like know where it's going. And, and then how do you keep it? How do you keep it going when you've finished like that first story arc that the series is still so popular that you don't want to give up on it? So um, there's a lot of like cool craft stuff. Um, and I honestly think that authors, uh, indie authors don't invest in enough in craft. Like so much of what I see is about, you know, my book is doing really badly. How do I fix it? And people are like, well, what about your blurb and your cover? And a lot of the times it is the blurb and the cover, but a lot of the times it's also the writing. And especially if you've only written like five books, I mean, like, come on, like, you've only written five books in your life. There's got to be like more where you can improve. So even me, like I've written like close to 30, like there's definitely, I'm not perfect. I'm always trying to improve. I'm taking a class right now um, from John Truby, uh, who I met at 20 books Vegas last year. And there's all kinds of like gold in there that uh, I'm really excited about. But anyway, I feel like I'm talking too long and maybe I've lost track. Well, you're uh, the person we're interviewing, so. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm supposed to talk. Uh, and then other things. So like the writer's retreat thing, that came from uh, last, I think it's been two years now. Uh, over the summer, I went to visit Mace Age uh, for like a month. She was still living in England at the time. And I still had a deadline on a book that I was working on. And she had a deadline. So for like a good, you know, half of the time that I was there, uh, we did writing sprints together and there is something magical about doing it in the same room with another person. Like you hear the key, you hear their fingers going on the keyboard and it like motivates you to keep writing faster and it almost like becomes like this, not a competition, but you're like motivating each other simply by being in the same room, doing it at the same time. And I thought I need someone to come and like move into my house <laughs> and just like write with me all the time because this is so much more efficient than doing it by myself. Like we got our words done like twice as fast. And I thought, well, what if maybe like twice a year or something, I just did this and I had like 10 of us get together and for a week, 
you know, we wrote every day. Like, honestly, I could probably finish, you know, half a book to a whole book if I was writing every day for like three or four hours with, you know, a bunch of people and we were all doing that. I think, I think that's really productive. And then of course, there's also the additional element of the networking. And then it's also nice because if you run into like a snag on your book and you're like, you have a plot problem, there's 10 other people that you can work it out with that are like right there. So obviously there's also, you know, the fun and being in a beautiful place and that's inspiring, but mostly it's just the people. It's, it's always with any of these things, it's the people that really make it worthwhile. I like this idea of, of having people tapping around you. That'd be great for me with dictating. I'll just be dictating around everyone. (laughs) See if I can get you guys tapping faster or typing faster. Um, Okay. So you've kind of answered around my question a little bit, but, um, and you can tell us your favorite food instead, if you feel like this has been too repetitive. Um, But uh, has there been a kind of event that you've attempted and decide not to do again or any you won't ever try? Not yet. Um, I mean, I, um, let's see. With Fantasy Fest, um, you know, depending on how this one goes, um, I may do another one again or I may not. Uh, we've had like, you know, pretty good ticket sales, but like sometimes what happens is you bite off more than you could chew. And I was like, well, we should try it. Cause I've been to conventions where they do the exact same thing every year. And then it's like, well, why am I paying to go do the exact same thing every year? Now, the answer to that is the networking, by the way. But still, you want to feel like you're learning something new from the presenters every year. So I thought this year, well, last year we did so-and-so and and I didn't really want to do the same thing. So I thought I would step it up by, you know, inviting speakers and trying to provide more high quality content. But I would say that if you're starting out for the first time, maybe don't go as extra as I did this year because... Um, you know, it does cost money. I may break even this year. I may not. Um, and that's something to keep in mind because when you're renting, you know, a ho- when you're renting, um, ballrooms at a hotel or a convention space, like those contracts are brutal. And, you know, regardless of whether you sell enough tickets, like you still have to pay that 10,000, 20,000, 50,000, whatever it is that you locked into. And that doesn't even include like the audio visual equipment. It doesn't include whatever you paid for the speakers. It doesn't include, you know, a lot of the swag bags and the money spent on advertising. Like there's a lot of money that goes into like putting on a convention especially, um, you know, if you're doing it by yourself. And then, you know, if you also, if the authors, you know, aren't promoting it either, um, that doesn't help your cause either. So it's like, you've got to kind of balance your expectations and not overextend yourself too much. So I don't know if I would do this again. It depends on how this one goes, because I, I am really excited about this one. Don't get me wrong. I know I sound like I'm poo-pooing my own conference, but it's going to be really fantastic. But it's a lot of work. It's so much work and it's so much financial risk. And the truth is, is that um, I personally, I, I have back pain issues and they prevent me from sitting in my chair and writing as long as I used to be able to. I used to do like 8,000 word days and now it's more like three to four simply because I just can't sit in the chair that long. And so on top of it, if I also have to spend two or three hours every day working on this convention stuff, uh, it's a it's a commitment because it's not just the day of the convention. It's like the six months to a year leading up to the convention that you're also com- putting time and money into. And you're not necessarily getting a huge profit off of it. Like 
like, let's say you made $10,000 off of the convention. Let's just say you did that. You still have, that's still a year's worth of work for $10,000. You could have written maybe like four or five books and made a lot more money than that. So I wouldn't do conventions for the money. I mean, you can, it's nice, but I personally, the reason I did it was because I like the networking and I like bringing people together. I didn't do it for the money and that wasn't my intention. The retreats, um, it's kind of a combination because I do make money on those. And uh, it's also benefits me because I get to write. Um, so that's really nice. So definitely retreats are great. You know, dinners are great. If you're all, all going to be in the same area conventions, like they are great. Like, but even like Jamin and Tate, they put on like a fantastic one called uh, the ball gowns and books event. And like a month before the convention, they were like, we're probably not going to do another one. Cause even though it's like going to be great, this was so much work. And then on top of it, they were talking about how like all these authors were canceling and because Australia is far away. And it's hard to get, you know, 70, 80 or however many authors, it's hard to get them all out there. And that's something I've, I've struggled with too, because it's like people start canceling like three months out or four months out and you have to scramble to like find replacements. So you just have to be prepared for that and just kind of realize that it's not going to be smooth sailing. There's going to be bumps and humps and it's, and it's a time commitment that but I feel like it's more of a public relations thing than a money-making thing. That's how I feel about it. Yeah, I'm amazed with the convention that you're doing this all yourself. I mean, do you know, is that typical or is it usually like a group of people that Usually come it's together? like four people, like a pen con, like you look at their page, they have like five people on staff. Me, it's me. And then I have Janet, who's like my event coordinator. Uh, my sister is actually helping me with the event styling because I couldn't find an event it's kind of weird because I live in Los Angeles and you would think that like fans, like event stylists would be everywhere, but like most of them just do weddings and I'm not looking for a wedding stylist. I'm looking for like a fantasy Ren fair kind of thing. And then like, it's been so hard to find like good prop shops, which is also weird because I'm living here in Hollywood, but you would be amazed how difficult it is to find a life-size dragon around here I'm telling you. <laughs> They should be all over. You should be able to like know, rent it from a studio or something. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds yeah. like maybe the 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 retreats you kind of do like an Airbnb and where have you been all like Puerto Vallarta? Is that was that? One well, I'm I've only done one so far, and that was last year. And we did North Carolina, and we rented like a mountain cabin, which was like really gorgeous, and it's kind of remote, but you know the town's like a 30, 40 minute drive, so it's not like you can't get food but there's no Uber Eats or anything out there. Um, and that was really nice. This year we're doing Temecula, which is like in the middle of wine country. And then we're doing NOLA. So those, both of those things are completely different because they're not on a hilltop and a mountain in the middle of nowhere. Temecula is pretty close to civilization, but it's also kind of not. And NOLA is in the middle of New Orleans and we're doing it during Halloween. So it's going to be, <laughs> it's actually going to be really crazy. But um, because the Halloween part is at the beginning of the retreat, I'm hoping we'll get that out of our system and then we'll spend the rest of the time writing. So it's kind of like we get to have fun together, but we also get to do work. And that's kind yeah, of I've, I've actually done like three of these with uh, friends I met through writing workshops, just the three of us. And I, my vote was definitely for like the log cabin at the state park. There was like one place you could walk to down the trail to eat dinner because mm -hmm. we were just super productive because like, what else are you going to do? Go look at a squirrel or something. Right. Exactly. 
uh, you really don't have anywhere else to go or a lot of things to get distracted by for sure. Um, but that is why I think it's almost like the best of both worlds. Cause a lot of people they'll go to a convention and they'll have a lot of fun, but they'll be so exhausted. But by the time they get back, it takes like a week for them to get back onto like their normal schedule and start writing again. But the writer's retreat, it's like you actually worked while you were there. So it's like you got the benefit of networking and spending time and having fun, but you also wrote like 40,000 words or, or whatever it is, 20 to 40,000 words. So it's not like you lost a lot of production time there. For those who are thinking maybe I would like to try this, do you have any tips on the money side as far as like kind of figuring out what you have to charge, how many people you have to get to um, hopefully make money or at least break even so it was worth your time? Yeah. So. Um, for me, uh, when I'm renting like these big houses, um, you have to kind of find the one that one that has enough rooms, first of all, because uh, I find it about 50-50. Half of people want their own room because they want to be able to escape if things get too social. Um, and the other 50% don't want to pay that much money and they want to bunk with a roommate. So you want like a good mix because if you rent a room that... If you rent a house that has 10 bedrooms and they all have one bed in them, then you're stuck selling to people who only want private rooms and are only and are willing to pay that much. Whereas if, uh, and then if you do it where everyone's shared, then, I mean, maybe that's a little easier, but it's also, um, you're going to have to fill twice as many spots basically. So that becomes difficult too. Um, and then you have to consider like, um, there are a lot of places where you have to pay like the entire thing up front. There are places where you have to put pay like half up front and it's non-refundable. So like for me, what I did this time is I was like, it's an $800 de deposit. It's non-refundable. And I wouldn't book the place until I got deposits for each spot. Because that way it's like that $800 times, you know, 10 or whatever is the is the deposit because these places are like twenty thousand dollars to rent or something they're expensive so if i get everybody to give me a deposit and then i book the place then i have a place i know it's paid for i know if someone has to cancel on me i'm not getting screwed on the deposit because i don't get refunded on, de on the deposit either so that's like one important thing to think about if you're going to rent like a big place with a big group of people and then um I also do like installment plans because most people don't want to pay like a huge chunk up front. So it's like, I just schedule it out and it's like, well, this is when the retreat is and you want it paid up by this date. And you know, it's like 200 or $300 a month. And that's really doable for most people, especially if the thing is not six months to a year out. So that makes it like pretty bite-sized. Um, but then you also have to think about food. You have to think about, um, you know, how you're getting there, like for North Carolina and for Temecula, um, for North Carolina, I rented like a giant SUV. I went to Costco and I bought all the food and like absolutely stuffed the whole SUV. And it was we probably bought slightly too much food, but honestly, we bought mostly enough because we were feeding, you know, 10 or 12 people for a whole week. And then you don't want to have to be taking too many trips back and forth if you're, you're in a remote area. And you also don't necessarily have a lot of dinner options either. So you want everybody to be fed, but you have to think how much does that cost? And it's not just the food. It's either you're cooking the food or in that particular case, Judah's mom came with us and she's a really fantastic cook. So she cooked the food. Um, so that was actually really nice because I got a break on that. But 
you might be cooking the food because hiring a personal chef might cost you an extra $5,000. And it's like, do you like, that's fine. But then you have to raise the price of the retreat. And it it gets to a certain point where people don't want to pay more than a certain amount. Uh, And then also on top of that, if you're in a remote area, uh, it becomes harder to get a private chef in the first place because it's like, well, then are they going to live with you for the whole week? Are you going to have like some random stranger cooking and living in your house for a whole week? Maybe, maybe like, it's just things to think about. Yeah, and sort of continuing from from the the whole location thing. Now, obviously, a retreat by its very nature is going to be sort of a de- the destination is part of the point. But right. like, if you've got especially if you've got like a reader facing part of the uh, of the event, uh, should you be aiming for something that's like more a more populated area, or should you maybe, as with books, sometimes if you're the only game in town, you sort of capture an entire niche. So, like, how much does the location weigh in on those types of events? Well, um. I kind of think that um, an an element of remoteness is good because, um, like Lindsay said, it's like you're out in the middle of nowhere. There's nowhere to go. Like, what else are you going to do? But to be honest with you, we also played Cards Against Humanity and we played D&D. And when you have a group of 10 people together, there's plenty of trouble that you can get into uh, without having anything nearby to do. So... um, I think it's kind of good to not be too far away from civilization because what if something happens? Like what if someone gets hurt or sick and then you need medical attention and that hasn't happened to me obviously, but it could happen. And then you don't want to have to drive them 30 minutes to an hour or whatever. Um, I also recommend having a first aid kit on hand because if you are in a remote location and something happens, you want to be able to do something about it. Um, so there's that. And also sometimes it's nice to just go do activities together. It's like, all right, if we all write, if we write, you know, 5,000 words today, we get to go uh, do a tour at the vineyard or something, or we get to go on a hot air balloon ride or whatever. Like that stuff can be really nice too. Very much so, especially if you're in wine country or um, I guess let's wrap up. Tell us a little bit about the Fantasy Book Fest because it's still two months out as we record this and mm-hmm. um, people could sign up if they're interested, right? Are there still sounds like there's still tickets yes there are still tickets um you can go to fantasybookfest.com um and that's like the official website and you can see the list of attending authors and like where it is and the hotel info but basically it's april 17th to 19th um it's um in anaheim it's at the majestic garden hotel and the reason i picked that location is because um a lot of people when i did the convention last year they were like well, I can't come because, you know, we, the only time I take off, we do it for like a family vacation. So I picked a hotel that was right next to Disneyland because I was like, well, here's your family vacation. Have your husband or wife take the kids, go to Disneyland and you come and do the workshops and have fun with us. So like, that was my thought. So I've also set it up so that anybody who buys a convention ticket gets access to a special link so they can get discounted park, park rate tickets. So you can go to Disneyland cheaper than you normally would. And you get to come to the convention. Um, It's a three-day convention. And basically, the first day is all workshops. Um, It's... Let me just pull this up. I don't have, like, the full, full schedule yet because we're still, you know, switching around things. But we have, like, one on dynamic story creation, which is about how to basically create a story arc that's emotionally satisfying for readers. Uh, Kelly Armstrong is doing a a workshop on how to get your opening pages right, which is super important. 
there's uh Karen Chance is doing one on like action scenes. Um, we're doing uh, Chris Fox is doing Right to Market, and then we're having like the game night for D and D, and then Felicia Beasley, who does my ads for me and who has enabled me to take a whole bunch of time off and not write any books and still make money, she is doing like a full, like in depth, several hour workshop on how to do Amazon ads. And personally, I think like that alone is worth the cost of like the whole convention because that's like actually in person, like. Um, education on how to run ads and make money on your books. And you can't get that. Usually you have to take like a course and that's like Mark Dawson, he has a great course, but it's like, it's still just a video and a transcript in you and you could email him and ask questions, but it's not the same as like actually being in the room with the person and getting help. Um, so like we have stuff for both writing craft and for like the business of writing. And um, we also have a lot of panels for uh, genre fiction, which is where you can ask your right to market type questions and you can find out, well, I want to break into a variety of subgenres. Um, and then, yeah, on the last day, we've got like this great book signing and we're going to be doing cosplay and we're going to have uh, performers. I'm going to have like, you know, knights doing sword fights and like magic stuff. And I think um, maybe some like fortune tellers doing tarot readings and like cool, like fun like Ren Faire fantasy performance things and the signing at the same time. So I personally think it's a really good time, uh, but that's just me. And you can either get a ticket to the whole convention, or if you're a reader, you can get a ticket for just the reader parts. Or if you just want to go to the signing and meet the authors, you can get a ticket for that too. So like there's different tiers for sure. All right. I'm going to be hanging out at the Chris Fox talk and the Amazon ads talk for sure. And then I have my <laughs> dragon hat. So I will at least partially dress up in something fantasy. Yes. Excellent. <laughs> Not really a cosplay person, but uh, sure. It's I a, got a dragon hat. Cosplay. You know. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, and where can people find you online? And do you still have like the Facebook group for the writing retreats in case they're interested in that? I do. So um, the Facebook group for the writing retreats is just called Indie Author Writing Retreats. It's a very fancy name I made up myself. Um, and you can find me at www.jasminewalt.com. Obviously, my Facebook page is Jasmine Walt. There's also Jessica Drake and Jada Storm. They both have their own websites and Facebook pages. But really, Jasmine Walt is where I spend most of my time. Um, I'm on Instagram too, but that's mostly just me sharing uh, pictures of my dog. So <laughs> I don't know how interesting that is. Um, yeah, I think that's about it. That is also what I share on Instagram. I haven't really mastered that one yet. They can't go wrong with dog pictures. But um, thank yeah. you very much for talking with us today for over an hour. Any final advice or uh, I don't know, anything you want to say before we head off? Uh, no, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I did a lot of talking today. In case you haven't noticed, I don't do a lot of talking very often. So hearing myself talk for a whole hour, that's been more than enough for me. All right. But no, I hope I understand. that was helpful. <laughs> I understand completely. As an introvert, it's exhausting to me, like an hour interview on a podcast. I'm like, I need to go take a nap now. <laughs> exactly. That's where I'm going right after this. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you everyone for listening and um, stop by the website for the show notes sixfigureauthors.com with the number six and as andrea mentioned we do have the facebook group you can just search for six figure authors or the link is in the uh, show notes and i'll have the links to the fantasy book fest and jasmine's other sites and also her books on amazon if you want to check any of that out uh, thank you so much for listening everyone see you later so long everybody